Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5. You may want to turn to the end of the book of Psalms because I'll be referencing that a few times this morning. Ephesians 5 and the last few Psalms. Remember, the whole theme of the book of Ephesians is walking in the riches of His grace. And we spent the first three chapters learning what those riches are, and then beginning in chapter 4, we started talking about how to live in a way that is worthy of the riches that we've been given, that's worthy of the incredible name we've been given. We are in Christ. And to live a life that's worthy of the wonderful riches we have in Christ, Paul says we need to stop living like we did before we were saved. We need to let God change our thinking in those areas of conduct. And then finally, we need to put on a new way of behaving, a new way of conduct. And one of the areas that Paul addresses with our conduct has to do with the area of control. We need to stop letting other things control us. He said, don't be drunk with wine. We're in a success. We need to let God change our thinking so that we don't strive to be in control, but instead we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And when we yield to the Holy Spirit and we exercise His fruit, which is self-control, these next three verses in Ephesians 5, verses 19 through 21, they describe what our lives will look like. So I'm going to start reading in verse 17 and then we'll pick up our study in verse 19. Ephesians 5, 17, wherefore do not be unwise or don't stop being mindless, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. And do not or stop being drunk with wine wherein is excess, a life that has no light, a life that is not rescuing anyone, but instead be filled with the Spirit speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Being continually filled with the Holy Spirit is the main thought of this section in Paul's letter, and therefore it's the main command. The three action words that follow here in the next three verses, speaking, giving thanks, and submitting, all three of those words are participles. Being filled, filled is a verb, and so that means that the participles support the verb. So these things, speaking, submitting, giving thanks, these are all behaviors that explain what being filled with the Holy Spirit looks like. So we start in verse 19 with the first one, which is speaking to each other in song. So it says, speaking to yourselves. Now, I know that sounds like talking to yourself in songs, but it it literally means speaking to yourselves. It's external. It's speaking with each other. We need to be speaking with each other, it says, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, these are three different types of ways you could describe a song we could sing. The word here, psalms, it literally means a striking or twitching with the fingers. Our friend Andrew here who led us this morning was striking and twitching with his fingers, playing an instrument. That's what this word means. These are songs of praise that are accompanied with instruments. The next word, hymns here, it means a festal song with religious content. So these are like the last song we sang, a very celebratory, joyful song. These are celebratory songs of praise that are particularly addressed to God. And then lastly, it says spiritual songs, which basically means any kind of song that is from the Holy Spirit. 
It could refer to a sad song. It could refer to a joyful song. You know, when we have our Good Friday services and we sing songs about the suffering of our Savior, it melts my heart. It breaks my heart. I'm not all excited about what Jesus had to go through for me. And when I reflect on that and I remember that, it's, it's a sad song. It's sad what my sin did to Him. There's a sense of, of reality of how ugly my sin is. I'm not all smiles when I sing those songs. It could refer to joyful songs. It could refer to songs that are addressed to God. It could be songs that are, are very much addressed to our own heart. It could be songs where we exhort each other. It's any kind of song that's from the Holy Spirit. We are commanded to sing all three of these types of songs. They are all three evidence of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I bring this up because it is very discouraging for me as a pastor to see how Christians often bicker over what constitutes biblical worship. Are instruments okay or are they bad? Are certain instruments bad? I've had people tell me certain instruments are bad. Should all, I'd say the only bad instrument one is not played well. Should all music be sung to God or should, it, should all music be very personal? Should, should all music never be sung to each other? Should it be always joyous or should it be always reverent? Should music be played on instruments with skill or sung with skill or should it be purposely flat so as not to involve the flesh? These arguments have been had by Christians. You could just go on social media and you'll find somebody arguing about it. Well, songs shouldn't be this way. Worship is like this. And you have people define it in one of the ways I just described. These arguments are not new. They have taken place all throughout the history of the church. Clement of Alexandria, a pastor in Egypt, he went commenting on this passage of Ephesians in 195 AD. He believed that because Paul's reference to drunkenness was so close to the reference to singing songs, that his reference to drunkenness included the musical activities that often took place where drinking took place. And so he said this, and I quote, let revelry keep away from our rational entertainments and foolish vigils too that revel in intemperance. For revelry is an inebriating pipe, the chain of an amatory bridge that is of sorrow. And let love and intoxication and senseless passions be removed from our choir. Burlesque singing is the boon companion of drunkenness. As we sang in tenderness just now and we were belting it out, I know some of you out there were tempted to just go get wasted right? That's what Clement said. For if people occupy their time with pipes and psalteries and choirs and dances and e Egyptian clapping of hands and such disorderly frivolities, they become quite immodest of delusion or and intractable. In other words, you know, as we sang songs that had clapping and stuff, some of you guys were just wanting to go out and take your clothes off and be immodest. Beating on cymbals and drums and making a noise on instruments of delusion. I wonder if that's in the fine print. Like when you buy an instrument, beware, this is an instrument of delusion. For plainly, such a banquet, it seems to me, is the theater of drunkenness. Let the pipe be resigned, he says, to the shepherds, those bad people. And the flute to the superstitious who are engrossed in idolatry. For in truth, such instruments are to be banished from the temperate banquet. In other words, their love feast where they celebrated the Lord's Supper being more suitable to beasts than men and the more irrational portion of mankind. 
Now, what I find fascinating is that Clement was perfectly fine with using a harp during worship. He says this, for temperate harmonies are to be admitted, but we are to banish as far as possible from our robust mind those liquid harmonies, which through pernicious arts and the modulations of tones trained to effeminacy and scurrility. Sorry, guys, you became way less manly by singing the songs we sang this morning because they had modulation of tones. The idea is everything should be sung in a flat tone, no modulation, no, no uh, variation of tone. Chromatic harmonies, he says, are therefore to be abandoned to those immodest revels and to florid and meretricious music. The majority of church leaders between 100 AD and 500 AD did not accept the use of musical instruments in church, and they didn't allow singing that was similar to ours. They preferred to sing in a chanting fashion, everything holding the same tone. They believed instruments were part of the old covenant, part of Israel's worship, and since God had judged Israel, they didn't want any part of that. And so they were also concerned that the influence of pagan musical styles would lead the church astray. Someone, I got saved in 1988. Uh, 1988 was like the height of Christian music when it first started coming on to the, the scene. And so all sorts of books were written to protect the church and our youth from getting influenced by these Christian rockers. So I remember 1996 is when we first started the church in Sanford. Someone for Christmas gave me a Why the Devil is Involved in Christian Rock Music book. You say, oh, that was a big deal in the 80s, though. Like people, I would go to concerts and there'd be people, Christians, picketing those concerts. Not new, not new. <laughs> Basil the Great thought that guitar players should be excommunicated from the church. And Ambrose was concerned that if Christians turned to playing instruments during worship, they might lose their salvation. Many early church leaders allegorized the use of musical instruments from the Old Testament. They said, well, Israel didn't really use those actual instruments like drums and stuff and cymbals, but those verses that talked about those instruments, they just represented ideas. Some Christian leaders became so uh, aesthetic. Being aesthetic means you, you don't want anything in the, in the flesh, like you'd, you'd stay away from foods that taste good. You know, the idea is you don't want anything that might uh, excite the flesh or, or excite your emotions or passions. Some Christian leaders became so aesthetic in their approach to music that they refused to sing out loud, believing that the purest form of worship was only in the heart. In the Council of Laodicea in 363 AD, the pastors at the meeting banned congregational singing in their region widening the gap between the priests and the church members. Congregations at this point became onlookers of worship rather than participants. And you may have visited a church like that. I'm not trying to be critical of that church. I'm just saying you may go, have gone to a church where no one in the congregation sings, only the choir sings. That started not like 100 years ago. That started like 2,000 years ago. Why bring all this up? Why go off on this kind of side tangent? Because I want to show you how easy it is to slip from what the Bible says into our own ideas about how worship in church should be. It is very easy. There is nothing wrong with having preferences, all right? The older I get, I blasted my ears out in the 80s, so mine don't work as well now. I'm much more sensitive to loud music than I used to be. So I understand if you don't like the music being loud, but recognize it as a preference and not and evil. There's nothing wrong with having preferences, but recognize what it is. It's your preference. And just because something is my preference doesn't mean my idea of how church worship should go is more biblical. I 
and you need to bend the knee to what the Bible teaches on the topic. And the Bible is super clear on this topic. Paul commands us here to sing psalms, songs that employ instruments. Psalm 150 explains this very clearly. I think it's interesting that God put it at the very end, so it'd almost be like it'd be one thing that he's like, and by the way, don't forget. Psalm 150, verse 1, praise ye the Lord. Praise God in the sanctuary. Praise Him in the firmament of His power. Praise Him for His mighty acts. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. And then here we go. Praise Him with the sound of the trumpet. Ain't nobody played the trumpet quietly. My son plays the trumpet. We have a room he goes to to play the trumpet. It's way in the back of the house. (laughs) Praise Him with the psaltery and the harp. Praise Him with the timbrel and the dance. Praise Him with the stringed instruments and the organs. Praise Him upon the loud cymbals. This is probably one of the largest complaints we'll get at times. It's too loud. And they'll go back to Ken, and the Ken is too loud. And Ken, he's got a little meter back there. If you didn't know this, he's got a little meter that actually tells him how loud the music is. And so, it's, you did something today. It's too loud today. And he'll look at the meter, and the meter is exactly as it's been for 74 weeks. What I want to get him is just a plaque that has this verse on it. And somebody comes back and goes, too loud. He goes, it's supposed to be loud. <laughs> Praise him upon the loud symbols. Praise him upon the high-sounding symbols. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise ye the Lord. We're supposed to sing songs that employ instruments. If we're not ever doing that, then in some way we're not being obedient to the Lord. Paul commands us to sing hymns. In other words, songs that are directed to God. Psalm 148, praise ye the Lord. Praise ye the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise ye Him, all His angels. Praise ye Him, all His hosts. Praise ye Him. You're going to hear that phrase over and over again. Praise the Lord. Praise Him. Praise Him. We should be singing songs also that are directed to God. If we're never singing songs that are directed to God, then we are not being obedient in our worship. If all we sing about is the troubles we go through, if all we sing about is how we need to be happy and excited or how God wants to bless you, that's great. Those are good truths. But if we don't ever just sing to the Lord, we're not being obedient in our worship. And then lastly, Paul commands us to sing spiritual songs, any kind of song that comes from the Holy Spirit. Psalm 146, verses 1 and 2, praise ye the Lord. Praise ye the Lord, O my soul. He's talking to himself now. We also sing other songs, not just songs directed to God. He's talking to himself. Praise ye the Lord, O my soul. In a song, while I live, will I praise the Lord. He's making a decision as he's singing. I will sing praises unto my God while I have any being. Therefore, if an opportunity presents itself to praise the Lord, why would I ever hold my breath? I don't like that song. You know what's interesting? You'll never find in the Bible that God says, hey, if you like this song, sing it. (laughs) Never. Never. Never will you find in the Bible the Lord says, hey, if, you know, David had three main worship leaders and then he had, I think it's 24 worship bands underneath, 24 other worship leaders under the main three. If you showed up at the tabernacle or later on with Solomon with the temple and Worship leader is there, and I was like, God, dude, this is the guy that sings all the melancholy songs. 
Or, oh no, this guy's gonna make us stand up and clap all the time. I'm tired today, I just came all the way from Beersheba. <laughs> There's nothing in the scripture that says, well, if Asaph's the worship leader today, you don't have to sing. If you don't like the song, you don't have to do this. It doesn't say any of those things. It says, if there's an opportunity with your breath to praise the Lord, then why would you ever hold your breath? Because you have a different preference? Or out of pride because you think your preference represents what's biblical? Guys, let's stop the bickering and the finger pointing and start obeying God's commands from Scripture. Let's be those who just say, okay, that's what the Bible says, I'm gonna go with it. The only songs that we should not be singing are songs where the lyrics are not biblical. If the lyrics are biblical, then let's not get hung up on anything else. Let's not get hung up on anything else. Because if what we are saying is biblical, then that praise is beautiful to the Lord. It says in verse four of Psalm 149, right after it says, let him let him, them praise his name in the dance. Let them pr sing praises unto him with the timbrel and the harp. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the meek with salvation. God's blessed when we sing to him. And that praise is beautiful to the Lord. If what we're saying is biblical, it's beautiful, it's true. That phrase is true whether the mood is reverent or reflective or celebratory or mournful or exhortative. It's true whether the style is old-fashioned or traditional or contemporary or even unique. It's true whether the subject of the song is congregational or it applies to all of us or it's deeply personal, dealing with our individual relationship with the Lord or maybe even our relationship with another person. The statement is true whether we are addressing God in the song or we are addressing one another or even addressing our own hearts. You see, people say, oh, every song should be sung to God. That's not even biblical. There's nothing close to biblical about that statement. The Bible says here we're to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Why would we do it to each other? I don't know about you, but have you ever come in, the song's playing, and you're just like, Lord, I don't even know if I can sing this right now. I'm not even sure what I think about that right now. Like, I don't, I don't know if I want to surrender right now. I, I'm so mad at my spouse or I'm mad at my boss or I'm mad at somebody at church or whatever it might be. And you think, I don't want to sing right now. And, you know, I, I don't even know if you're there. I'm going through this hard time. And Lord, I don't even know if you're there. And then you hear 20 or 30 or 100 people around you singing it. And they're egging you on. <laughs> because they're all singing it from their hearts and they believe it. I don't know about you, but there's been times when I've been wrestling with the Lord and something and hearing all the people around me belting it out to the Lord with faith in their hearts. And the Lord's just saying, Lord, Will, what's wrong with you? You think you're the only one who struggles? You think you're the only one who battles? You think you're the only one who's had to wrestle with these questions? I am, I'm just gonna be honest with you right now. I am deeply offended every time one of these well-known worship leaders comes out and goes, I'm not a Christian anymore. Let me explain to you why. Because most of them are from very well-known church organizations or church movements. And they're well-known, and all of a sudden, boom, they come out in their blog, I've thought about the suffering I see in the world, or I've thought about all the problems I see in the world, and I look at what the Bible says, and I can't reconcile the two, and so I'm not a Christian anymore. 
And I read that and I think, oh, like you're the only person who's ever battled that, and you're the only person intelligent enough who can come to the conclusion that, hey, I can't find an answer, and therefore God can't exist. When did you become so important? When did you become so high and mighty that your word of one person who thinks they're so super important that they got to announce to the world that the Bible's not true and God isn't real, when thousands of Christians throughout the ages have struggled with those very same questions, and they've come to a radically different conclusion than you have. They've come to the conclusion that God's word is real, that God is alive, and that he's working. I get insulted because I'm just like, I just want to say, just shut up and sit down. I've had the same thoughts you've had. You know, there are some mornings you sit out on your porch and you look out and I've got my Bible and you you think, Lord, are you there? We're human. We all have these thoughts at times. But what I keep coming back to is when I read through the Word of God, I go, just because God hasn't done what I want Him to do doesn't mean He violated what He said He would do. And as I keep coming back to the Scriptures, the Lord keeps bringing me back to that place where He goes, I am who I say I would be, Will. I'm exactly who I said I would be. I have never lied to you. I have never failed you. And when I'm honest with myself, I know that's true. And so we do wrestle, but it's good to sing to each other. Me and Bev always kind of joke with one another because the church that I kind of, not grew up in, but when I first got saved and started attending and really started to grow as a Christian, we used to have this hymn that we would sing. And you may have heard it if you're a little bit older, and she's probably going to know which one it is. But we chuckle because it's kind of a silly song. And the song goes like this. Cheer up, you saints of God, there's nothing to worry about, nothing to make you feel afraid, nothing to make you doubt. And then it kind of goes on, you know, and it's almost like you're just like in a bar, just, (laughs) everything's great, man, like, you know, celebrate, life is wonderful. It's a very superficial song, it's not deep, but you know, the whole idea behind the song is, you're not the only one struggling. There's a good truth in the song. You're not the only one battling today. Look at everyone else who's fighting the same battles, but they've come to the conclusion that God is good, and He's there, and His Word is true. And we do that. We'll just sing it a silly way to each other when one of us is down. And because it wakes us up, you're like, that's true. We sing songs. We don't sing that song, but we sing songs like that, that, that maybe they're not addressed to God. They might declare a doctrinal truth. They might be an exhortation. They might be one where we're talking to our own heart. But the idea behind it is you hear someone else do that and it wakes you up. It stirs you up. All of those songs are good. And all of them are beautiful to the Lord. Now, biblical worship also assumes one other thing. And this is at the end of Ephesians 5.19. He says, we speak to ourselves and to each other in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and then it says, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Biblical worship assumes not only that it's biblical, but that the words we sing to each other and to the Lord are sincere. It says that we sing, we utter these words in a musical pattern, making melody, which again refers to musical instrumental accompaniment, but we do it from the heart. My will, my mind, my emotions are engaged. You know, that song in tenderness, it's a great song because it's got quite a few lines that make you think. 
And I love that about certain worship songs. I, I think about it. I go, that's a cool thought and how it applies to my life in this way. And then it makes me sing even louder for my heart because I'm, now I'm going to surrender that area of my life to the Lord that I'm thinking about. That's what he's talking about here. If the words of a song only touch my lips, then it's not worship. The word worship, it means to kiss toward, to fall upon your knees and bow with your forehead touching the ground. And so that means that you can worship even when you can barely whisper the words because you're so overcome by emotion. Worship always begins with bowing my heart before Jesus. Even when we're singing a song to exhort each other, it always starts there. Because that's who we sing to, to the Lord. Jesus, the one who is our master, the one who's in charge of everything. God the Son deserves to be bowed down to. Surely, He deserves to be sung to as well. Amen? Now, I know I kind of had an aside about music and worship there, but let's bring it back to our context. Paul's point is that when you and I are filled with the Holy Spirit, when we're exercising self-control in our life, there's a song in our heart that reflects this surrendered attitude. And that song in our heart results in speaking things, singing things that are of spiritual value into other people's lives instead of the excess that drunkenness causes. That word excess, we talked about that last week where it means it does no good. There's no light in it. There's no saving in it. It's literally the word not saving. There's nothing redeemable in what we're speaking in the moment when we're drunk. In the other hand, when we're under the control, we're exercising self-control because we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we are speaking meaningful things and things of spiritual value into the lives of others. Now, when we're filled with the Holy Spirit and exercising self-control, it also results in thankfulness. Verse 20, giving thanks always for all things unto God, even the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Giving thanks here just means to regularly express gratitude for benefits or blessings. And it says that we do this how often? Always. It means on every occasion at all times. And just in case we thought there might be an event or time that's excluded from this, it says always in all things. We are to regularly express gratitude for God's benefits and blessings on every occasion with no exclusions. Now, in the context of the book of Ephesians, the all things that Paul is referring to is the blessings we have in Christ. I don't think Paul's saying that you and I should be thankful that someone did wrong to us. I'm so thankful that guy hit me in the head. I'm so thankful that person told me off. I'm so thankful I got fired today. I don't think that's what Paul's saying. I don't think he's saying that we should be thankful because of a difficult circumstance brought into my life. But what he's saying is that someone who is filled with the Spirit is regularly thankful for all that God has already done, whether my current circumstances are good or bad. I always not just have something I can be thankful for. There are multitudes of things I can be thankful to God at all times and in all circumstances. There are multitudes of things that I can go, you know what? I can be thankful right now. This is something that has really been a blessing in my life, I want to say, like in the last five or six years. I don't know if it's because of, I had a health issue like four or five years ago, and then COVID came, and then sometimes you have other things in your life that are challenging. I don't know if that's why it happened, but about five or six years ago, the Lord just really started dealing with me on my thankfulness. 
And so in, in those moments when I'm just like, ugh, ugh, I'm so frustrated right now, I kind of immediately go into thankful mode now. And I just start listing off all the things that I can be thankful for. And let me tell you, it is eye-opening. Like when I just start doing that, it really does just start to put everything in the proper perspective. And I go, yeah, this stinks, but the truth is I've got it great. Like I've got it so good right now. And it's helped me to be able to do that in moments when things do not feel very good to just really have that joy in my heart and just to to recognize the truth of my situation, even my situation presently has something in it that's not very fun. So I ask you this morning, does this gratitude describe your behavior, your regular behavior, or are you often complaining? Are you often grumpy? Because if you and I are not expressing, regularly expressing gratitude, then we need to put off whatever else is influencing our mindset, and we need to put on being filled with the Holy Spirit. If that is not our regular attitude, our regular mindset, our regular behavior is one of thankfulness, then we're letting something else control us. We're letting a boss control us, a spouse control us, circumstances control us, our need for control to control us. We need to let God change our thinking about control so we can begin exercising self-control, the fruit of the Spirit. Complaining is a sign of being out of control. That's what complaining is. It means you're under the influence of either your own intellect or emotions or the influence of something that's external. When I'm I'm in a complaining mood, (laughs) I'm not usually thinking, you know what? This person or this organization who put me in the situation that I'm upset about, they're exerting a lot of control over me right now. I'm not usually thinking that when I'm in a complaining mood. I'm not usually thinking, you know what, they're influencing or this circumstance is influencing how I act towards my spouse and my other family members and my friends and even the Lord. And you know what? They're influencing how I even plan to respond to the situation. We're not usually thinking that when we're in a complaining mood. So when we're not in a general mood of being grateful to the Lord, that should be a sign we're not walking in the Spirit that we are very likely to head down a path of decision-making that will not be self-controlled. I realize that it's very human to want to vent to somebody or even at someone when we're frustrated. But Paul describes in another scripture that there is a different way, another way to look at distressful circumstances or even the wrongs done to us. In 2 Corinthians 4, verses 8 and 9, Paul says, listen, we are... And it just dropped out of my head. Troubled. We are troubled on every side. But we are not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. It's interesting. Paul lays it out, and he's like, this is really what's going on in our lives right now. At the beginning of 2 Corinthians, he talked about how his ministry team wanted to die. That's how bad things were. They didn't want to go on. It says they despaired of life. Now, he says they didn't stay there long because people encouraged them, and God brought encouragement into their lives. But he says, he was evaluating, this is, we're still in the trouble though. He goes, we're troubled on every side, hard pressed on every side. There's no escape from the trouble. We're perplexed. We have no clue what to do. We're persecuted. Others are mistreating us, and we are struck down. Man, we've been knocked down. But he says, even though those things are true, there are other things that are not true. 
I might be, we might be hemmed in on every side, but we're not distressed. He goes, we might be perplexed. We might not know what to do, but we're not hopeless. We're not in despair. Others might be against us, but we're not alone. We're not forsaken. And we might be struck down, but we're still kicking. We're not destroyed. And so Paul says we keep going. We don't faint. Verse 17, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look at not the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Light affliction, Paul? Hemmed in on every side? No clue what to do? Persecuted? Knocked down? That doesn't sound like light affliction to me. But he says when you gain perspective and you consider all the riches you have in Christ, the things not always seen, the things not seen, he goes, there's no comparison. The right understanding of self-control isn't, get a hold of yourself, Will. You're going to be thankful if it kills you. That's not self-control. The right understanding of self-control is that we recognize our need to yield to the Holy Spirit. Lord, I don't know what to do, but I know you do. I am being opposed by others or mistreated by others, but I know you haven't left me. I am knocked down, but I'm still here. Do you know how many times I've uttered those words, sometimes have to say them out loud when the enemy's just bullying you and all the lies he's throwing into your head? Sometimes I'll just sit up in my office and go, I'm still here. I'm still here. I've been in that place before where I've heard those lies, and guess what? I'm still here. I'm not dead yet. So, we keep walking. We keep walking. And we come to the Lord. We come to the Spirit and we say, Lord, this hurts. Or Lord, this makes me angry. Or Lord, I don't know what to do. But I don't want to live under their influence or even under my own, the own influence of my flesh. I bend the knee to you, Holy Spirit. I bend the knee to your influence. Fill me so I can exercise self-control. And you know what? When you and I do that, the Holy Spirit's going to bring to our mind all the riches we have in Christ. He's going to show us how good we have it, even though the current things we're going through are very difficult. And we'll be able to, with Paul, go, this light affliction is nothing compared to all this. I remember when, I don't think I'm alone in this. I talk to guys sometimes and they get, you get maybe like a bad prognosis on something or something's going weird with your body, you don't know what it is. And I think the tendency for most of us as men is to think I'm dying. Can any wives, am I the only one? Okay, good, all right, all right. Most of us guys, when something bad goes wrong, we think we're dying. And I remember when my health kind of went downhill like five or six years ago and I was in that bad spot for a bit. I was so nervous about dying every single night I'd go to bed. And I remember as I just got along with the Lord, you know, he's like, Will, what's the worst thing that happens if you die? Like, what's the worst thing that happens if I take you home tonight? My wife won't be taken care of. My kids won't be taken care of. I still got little kids that grow up without a dad. And he's like, I'm their heavenly father. Do you think you can do a better job than me? I suppose not. But Lord, I don't know what death is like. I've never crossed that bridge. You'll be with me. Is that so bad? What else do you need to know? Hmm, that puts it in perspective. There are all sorts of things in our lives that 
We've never been that way before, and when they come into our life, it's hard to go, Lord, I don't know what to do. Or, Lord, I feel knocked down. I don't know how to get back up. And when we come to the Lord and we say, I'm not going to try to handle this my own way, and I'm not going to let other people or other things influence me. I'm going to bend the knee to your Holy Spirit. And we do that, and the Lord puts things in perspective for us. He gives us that fruit of self-control that we can make good decisions in the midst of our troubles. His influence causes us to see how we might be hard-pressed on every side, but we aren't crushed. How though we aren't sure what to do, we still have hope. And how though we've been mistreated, we aren't going to face it alone. And how though we've been knocked down, we're still here. And we're not done until God says we're done. Now, understanding the truth that we're we're going through is light affliction compared to the awesome riches we have in Christ, that produces that gratitude in our hearts. So how do we give thanks? It says, well, we give it unto God, even the Father. That's what end there means, unto God, even the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is how Jesus taught us to pray. He taught us to pray to the Father in His name by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's how Paul prayed in Ephesians 3.14. He said, for this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Romans 8.26, Paul said that the Spirit of God, He helps us in our weaknesses because sometimes we don't know how to pray. Now, the reason for the model that Jesus gave us is because God has revealed to us in His Word that each member of the Trinity relates to us uniquely. God the Father is our provider. God the Son is our mediator. That's what it means we pray in Jesus' name. And the Holy Spirit is the one who empowers us. It's important for us to understand that our prayers are Trinitarian. If our prayers are Unitarian, in other words, I say, dear God, and then amen, and that's it. Then when you pray, it makes it hard to see how there's any real difference in praying to the God of the Bible or praying to the God of the Quran or the God of some other religion. Understanding our God as a triune God in prayer is important. And yet, we don't need to be dogmatic about how we pray. Each member of the Trinity is God, equally God. So while Jesus gave us this model, we also see Stephen praying to Jesus while he's being stoned. The Bible ends with John making a prayer request to Jesus. So you can pray. There's nothing wrong with praying to Jesus or praying to the Holy Spirit, but I would suggest this. If your prayer life tends to involve only one member of the Godhead, it might be good for you to return to the model that Jesus laid out so you fully understand who it is you're praying to. Well, lastly, it says when we're filled with the Spirit, it results in submitting yourselves to one another in the fear of God. Verse 21. The word submit here, or submitting, the root of that word, it means, it refers to soldiers who are marshaled in military order under a commanding officer. Here it's in the middle voice, which it means we're the ones doing the action and receiving the action. So it means that we place ourselves underneath the order or directives of our brothers and sisters in our life. It's in the present tense, which it means this is our regular behavior, is that we regularly place ourselves under the orders or directives of the brothers and sisters in our lives. Now, this is the exact opposite of being self-assertive. It's the opposite of being independent and domineering in your attitude. It's the opposite of a person who takes no account of other people's wishes or opinions. I love what Kenneth Weiss says. He says, it is the desire to get along with one another, being satisfied with less than one's due. It is a sweet reasonableness of attitude. 
When we decide to put on self-control by yielding to the Holy Spirit, it results in an attitude towards my brothers and sisters that is less concerned with what's fair or what I think is best. It's okay with not being first and foremost. It's an attitude that recognizes I'm part of a family, I'm part of a team, and whatever role God gives me, I'm fine with it. It's a good role. Paul describes this sweet disposition of this self-controlled life in Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4, when he says, if there's any consolation in Christ, if there's any comfort of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if there's any bowels and mercies, in other words, if there's any kindness and love that God's shown to you, which there is, then he says, fulfill you my joy that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Nothing being done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Our old way of doing life looked at the topic of control and said, I'm not yielding control to anybody else. I'm going to do what I think and what I like. Watchman Nee in his commentary on Ephesians, he said this, told a story. He said a brother in South China had a rice field in the middle of the hill, and in the time of drought, he used a water wheel worked by a treadmill to lift water from the irrigation stream into his field. Well, his neighbor had two fields below his, and one night, he made a breach, the neighbor did, in the dividing bank and drained off all his water. When the brother repaired the breach and he pumped in more water, his neighbor did the same thing again, and this was repeated three or four times. So he consulted his brethren and said, I have tried to be patient and not to retaliate, he said. But is it fair? Is this right? After they had prayed together about it, one of the brothers replied, if we only try to do the right or fair thing, surely we are very poor Christians. We have to do something more than what is right. Well, the brother was much impressed. And so next morning he pumped water for the two fields belonging to his neighbor. And in the afternoon he pumped water for his own field and that water stayed in his field this time. His neighbor was so amazed at his action that he began to inquire the reason, and in the course of time, he too became a Christian. And he went on to say, when the Lord Jesus died on the cross, he did not do so to defend our rights. It was grace that took him there. The principle of the cross is our principle of conduct. You see, If anyone had a right to demand control, it was Jesus. And yet Jesus submitted to the Father's leadership all the way to a cross he didn't deserve, but a cross we very much needed. In John 10, 18, Jesus said, I was in control. No man takes my life from me. I lay it down to myself, and if I lay it down, I have power to take it up again. And yet, Jesus lived in the correct understanding of control a life of self-control because he was yielded to the Holy Spirit as he followed his Father's lead. And so I ask you this morning, does that describe your disposition towards others? Or do you need to put off incorrect ideas about control and recognize your need to be filled with the Holy Spirit? I know some of you might be thinking, well, people in the church have hurt me when I've trusted them. People in the church have failed me or sinned against me when I've followed their lead that's going to happen because all of us are works in progress still. But that's why the end of this verse is so important. Being filled with the Spirit results in submitting yourselves one to another 
it says, in the fear of God, in a profound reverence or awe and respect for God. When we put off our ideas of control and we yield to God's Spirit, He doesn't call us to submit to one another because they've earned it. He calls us to do it because He deserves it. If a brother or sister hurts you or disappoints your trust or sins against you, go talk to them about it. And don't assume the worst. Assume the best. Assume that their heart isn't to hurt you or fail you or wrong you. But if when you do that, they refuse to respond biblically, well, there's Scripture about how to handle that. The point is, though, is that the goal in my heart needs to be to restore the relationship, not write off the relationship. And when we consider all that Jesus has done for us, is God's Spirit really asking much of us in this? No, not at all. And so, if you are struggling with laying down control of what you perceive are your rights, the solution is always to return to the cross. Because when you and I see the sinless, awesome Son of God crucified for me and all the wrongs I've done, all of my arguments about fairness and what's right are smashed. Now, normally at the end of the service, I pray, we bring the band up, sing a song, and then we call the prayer team up. But we have been talking about this idea that, that Paul says, listen, you guys are light. You guys are supposed to shine. You're supposed to be able to say to the world, awake you who sleep and Christ shall give you light. We can't do that if we aren't light and we won't do that if we're not walking in the Spirit. And so I realize that some of the things I've talked about this morning are heavy. But I want to invite the prayer team to come up now. And I want to encourage you as we sing, come up. If you need a fresh filling of God's Spirit, maybe you look at this and you go, you know what? I'm looking at my marriage right now, or I'm looking at the way I parent, or I'm looking at my interactions with my neighbors or my coworkers, or just my, my Christian life, and all too often there's not a whole lot of things that are different about me than the way everybody else acts. I don't have a song in my cart. I'm not submitted to people around me. I'm not a thankful person. If one or more of those areas in your life right now you're seeing that it doesn't reflect what Paul describes here, the life filled with the Spirit, then come forward and ask God for a fresh filling of His Spirit. Don't worry about, well, people are here. What do they think I'm coming forward for prayer for? It doesn't matter. All of us leak. None of us are perfect reservoirs for the Holy Spirit. That's why the command we talked about last week was being filled with the Holy Spirit. We need refills. And the cool part is, is there are better refills than any restaurant, and they're also free. God loves you. He wants to shine through you. But if you're going to try to keep control or you're going to allow other things to control you, you're not going to be filled with the Spirit and exercise self-control. So as they lead us in song and they come on over, I thought I saw them coming up. There they are. As they lead us in song, come forward now. Come up. You know, if, if there's too many people praying up here, we'll get more leaders up here to pray. But come forward for prayer. Come forward. Say, I need a fresh filling of God's Spirit. I want to shine like Paul describes here. Lord, we give you this time right now and we, we submit to you. Lord, you speak these words to us. You give us these commands to be filled with the Holy Spirit and now we want to respond. We want to be those who don't leave this morning the same as we came in. And certainly, Lord, if we've been walking in the flesh, if we've not been walking in the Spirit, we don't want to be those who leave today continuing the way we were. 
So Lord, we pray now you would pour out your spirit upon us, that you would change us, that you would empower us, that you would begin working in our lives with those areas that you've put your finger on today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.